0: The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance in Security on Federal News Radio, brought to you by your host Lindy Kaiser of ClearanceJobs.com and Sean Bigley with Security Clearance Law Firm Bigley Ranish.
1: This is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and William Henderson, president of the Federal Clearance Assistance Service. Bill has served as a counterintelligence agent with the U.S. Army and in a variety of personnel security roles in the Federal Service and also founded FedCast in 2012. Throughout his career, he has seen a number of security clearance issues. And he's joining us today to talk about some of the most frequent problems he encounters. We want to focus specifically now on foreign influence, foreign involvement, overseas contacts type of questions. Thank you again so much for joining us today, Bill.
2: Thank you, Lindy. I'm happy to be with you.
1: And so one timely question that we literally have just gotten at Clearance Jobs relates to the issue of maybe contacts or foreign influence concerns in the country of Afghanistan. So Again, a big heartache issue for a lot of service members who have translators or individuals they've worked with over there. I know a lot of service members are working actively to get folks they've served with back into the U.S. I know that there's a lot of Afghanistan refugees that people are trying to help and support. Country of origin matters when it comes to foreign influence. And obviously, Afghanistan has its own issues. Do you have any thoughts there, whether it's a service member, or a non-service member kind of engaging with? folks they worked with or deployed with? How do those contacts need to be reported if you're someone who has a security clearance?
2: Well, under the Security Executive Agent Directive Number 3, which has now just recently become applicable to uh, contractor employees, it had been applicable to all others for, for quite a while. There is a requirement to report any continuing association with foreign nationals if there is a bond of a Affection, obligation, or intimate contact, or exchange of personal information. There's also a requirement on the uh, standard form 86, the questionnaire for national security positions, to list people that an individual has sponsored to come to the United States. So, if the service member you know has actually gone to that extent of, of sponsoring them to come to the U.S., then they would also have to report it on the SF 86. Merely associating with a foreign national is not a reportable item, but as I said, if there is a bond of affection, obligation, intimate contact, or exchange of personal information, then it's now a requirement.
1: Yeah, that's a real, I mean, this question comes up a lot, and we've written about it at Clearance Jobs in terms of like, what is close and continuing contacts So would you say, like, if you're coming in contact with a foreign national in the course of, you know, maybe you attend church or are in a a club or organization with somebody who's a foreign national, that doesn't necessarily need to be reported, correct?
2: No, it doesn't. Now, we're talking about two different things here. One is the reporting requirement within the standard Form 86. And then the other one is the reporting requirement within Security Executive Agent Directive 3. and, And they're not worded the same. So the close and continuing contact are words that are particular to the standard form 86, not SEAD3. Uh, Se eighty three, it only talks about bonds of affection, obligation, intimate contact, and such. Whereas the standard form 86 talks about both close and continuing contact and a bond of obligation, common interest, affection, or obligation. Slightly different wording for those two reporting requirements. The SF-86 person's only going to submit one of those every five years or so. Under SEAD 3, anytime a relationship changes or is established, a report has to be submitted to their security officer.
1: Yeah. Welcome to the clearance process, friends. Clear as mud. That is always like a sticky point for me. And Bill, given your expertise in policy, you are my resident policy expert. Every time I find one of those nuanced policy questions and I don't know the answer, I always ask you, why do they form that language differently for things like that? Like, is there a purpose?
2: We're talking about two different agencies that develop these criteria. They have their own staffers who come up with the wording. I was never very fond of question 19 on the standard Form 86, the one about foreign contacts, because there is no official definition of what constitutes a bond of affection, obligation, common interest, or influence. There's no definition. It's an opinion type question. It's the applicant's opinion of, of whether or not there is such a bond that exists between them and the foreign national. The applicant has to decide for themselves when filling out the SF-86. The same sort of applies to the SE-83, although. I believe the government takes a much broader interpretation of that question than, than they do for the uh, standard Form 86. Like I said, th- there is no definition for what co- constitutes a bond. The close and continuing contact, well, continuing just means it's going to happen again in the future. And there's actually no definition for close.
1: <laughs> so let your heart decide, security clearance holder or applicant. Would you be willing to give up classified information. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a huge onus on the applicant or the individual um, to just discern those questions. And that's why they need folks like you and me and Sean Bigley, who will join us in the second half of the program to help them address these questions because there's a lot of nuance there. And especially I think for a new applicant coming in, I mean, that's why security officers have an important role though to train on those because I don't know if the average security clearance holder, you know, they're not going to go around reading what Security Executive Agent Directive 3 reads on their downtime, but it's going to be up to kind of their agency organization to let them know what new reporting requirements are there. My other question that I had, thank you for addressing the the Afghanistan one, which is definitely a hot topic, but you'd also talked about one of the bigger problems you get that applicants come to you with in your role in advising folks is the issue of reporting foreign contacts in terms of character references. So if you have character references that are living in another country, is that going to be an issue? You say that often comes up with somebody who's been living or working in a foreign country for a few years. And I, I honestly hadn't ever considered that nuance because I think of the character references was one of the really critical aspects of the SF-86. I would have a lot of fear listing a foreign national in one of those slots, but you said it's come up for you before. The
2: problem has been presented to me in in the context of question 16 on the SF-86 asks the applicant to list three character references. And and in the question, it specifically says, you know, try to list people in the United States. So the problem is presented to me in that respect. The underlying problem is um, the applicants have been living outside the United States for an extended period of time. And that's why they're having difficulty finding a character reference in the United States. Because, you know, they, let's say they've spent three years working in, in Hong Kong or Thailand, Taiwan, you name it. And these are typically people that applied for jobs with the Department of Commerce or the U.S. Trade Representative. When they present the question, I said, well, you know, try to find someone in the U.S. that can, that can serve as a reference. But you're going to have a real problem because the U.S. government has to be able to do a background investigation on you. And there is a requirement to have coverage at least for the last five years. And if there is a lack of coverage for a six-month period, I mean, complete lack of coverage for, for a six-month period within those five years, it's not a complete investigation. And likewise, if they can't interview a employment supervisor because the employment supervisor is in Taiwan, that's also a, a major shortcoming or, or gap in the case. And the only way then to grant a security clearance is with a deviation. So they're deviating from the standard requirements of a of a background investigation in order to grant clearance. This has become more prevalent in recent years when they added information regarding exceptions to the adjudicative guidelines. Uh, Previously it was only a problem it was only a, a thing that would come up with sensitive compartmented information clearances. Going back As far as the late 90s, there were provisions for exceptions to investigative requirements for SCI. As I said, more recently, they incorporated information about exceptions in the National Security Adjudicative Guidelines. And these exceptions are deviations, which I just spoke about, conditions, and waivers. If you go to, I think it's uh, Appendix C of the National Security Adjudicative Guidelines, you can find out what the exact definition of these exceptions are. But a person that's, that's spent a good deal of their time outside the United States is going to have a real problem having a complete background investigation conducted. Because the U.S. cannot send investigators to other countries and run around and knock on doors. The other country isn't going to permit it. We can do some of it you know, on U.S. military installations outside the U.S., But other than that, we kind of rely on liaison with the foreign government to do some checks in those countries. (laughs) It's a real
1: problem. Does the process for obtaining a security clearance just become too big of a hurdle? They just need to have more time in the U.S. before it's possible? Or are there other ways to kind of mitigate the lack of U.S.-based references?
2: Well, you know, the applicant can influence it by listing only people that reside in the United States on their security form. For instance, if they work for a U.S. company in a foreign location and their supervisor has rotated back to the U.S. or a, a co-worker or a second-tier supervisor has moved back to the U.S., they can list that person living in the U.S. to be the employment verifier on the SF-86. The only time it's really possible to do a, a reasonable investigation is when the US applicant was closely affiliated with a US government agency in a a foreign country. I had a client who worked with the US Chamber of Commerce in a foreign country, but she had regular contact with the US embassy in that country and knew a lot of foreign service officers because of her, her work with the chamber. And so she was able to use US State Department personnel as references, as character references, as work associates and such. I think the State Department is more able to conduct investigations of that type than other agencies. So, I mean, there are some workarounds, but it's pretty tough, you know, if you've spent the last five years in a foreign country and still expect the U.S. government to be able to do a complete background investigation on you.
1: Nuance is key in the devil in the details. And again, making sure you read the forms carefully and trying to find a way to... Get someone in there who's maybe not just the right person, but the right person who will actually respond, too, is key. I think sometimes people fill out the form without any regard to the fact that somebody's going to have to contact that individual. And how is that process going to work? I mean, I think that can, you know, whether it's a foreign national or somebody in the US, if you list somebody on your form that's impossible to get a hold of or will never respond to the phone call, that's an investigator's nightmare.
2: Yeah, th- there's another th- thing to consider is that, yeah. It's okay to use a foreign national to verify something, but a foreign national's recommendation that you should receive a security clearance is kind of worthless. In an investigation, you need a certain number of sources that are going to recommend you for a clearance. And they have you know, to be able to have a valid recommendation, that recommendation has to come from a U.S. citizen. In fact, investigators are told not to interview people that they know are not U.S. citizens.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. You can't expect somebody from another country to vouch for your, you know, willingness yeah. to, you know, protect U.S. national security information the same way. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. And the other side of it that comes up for us frequently is like, you know, being antisocial is a severe security clearance penalty because there are a lot of people you have to list on the SF eighty six. Never having known your neighbors really comes back to haunt you when when you're filling out the form. Well, I I appreciate you again so much, Bill, for joining us again. Your institutional knowledge and expertise and and awareness of all of these policy nuances is is really key. And I just so appreciate your your chatting with us.
2: Thank you, Mindy. Anytime.
0: Need to hire security cleared professionals? Reach the largest collection of cleared candidates with clearancejobs.com. Clear professionals trust the privacy and security of Clearance Jobs' career network, along with federal agencies and more than a 1,000 intelligence and defense contractors. Features like IntelliSearch, Workflow, and Meetings make it easy to build relationships, pipeline, and automate the recruiting process, while slashing time to hire. Get more information and learn how you can connect with top cleared candidates at clearancejobs.com. If you're a U.S. citizen with an active security clearance, find your next security cleared job at clearancejobs.com. Whether you're actively seeking a new job requiring security clearance, or you just want to keep in contact with hiring managers, Clearance Jobs is the largest security cleared career network. Founded in 2002, Clearance Jobs is a secure, vetted, private career network, meaning only pre-screened defense and intelligence recruiters can get access to your candidate profile. Clearance Jobs is the largest community of government contracting and federal government recruiters and security-cleared candidates, both sides brought together to fill the jobs that safeguard our nation. Register for a free profile to connect, communicate, and network with defense industry companies and government agencies and their recruiters. Don't yet have a security clearance? Arm yourself with the intelligence to get one at clearancejobs.com. Search thousands of articles and clearance
3: career resources at clearancejobs.com. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I am Security Clearance Attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser from ClearanceJobs.com. We're talking this segment about another emerging issue in the security clearance community, and that is cryptocurrencies. Those of you who are listening may have invested in these products, or uh, you may just be familiar with them from reading the news, but we are certainly seeing them pop up more and more in cases of security clearance holders, not so much who are being denied or revoked a clearance because of it, but who just may be nervous about what's on the horizon and what actions they may be taking today could have an impact on their cleared future. So the first thing I guess we should talk about today is the legality of security clearance holders owning cryptocurrencies. And I think it's important for everybody to understand that as of today, there's nothing at all in the law or in policy anywhere that precludes security clearance holders from purchasing or transacting in cryptocurrencies. But that doesn't mean it's always a smart idea. Lindy, I know that there's been a lot of chatter on the clearance shops forums about this issue. What are some of the concerns specifically that you are seeing come up uh, amongst readers?
1: We've got a lot of questions about crypto. We probably get as many questions or comments about crypto from investigator adjudicator side trying to figure out how they're supposed to address these. I think there's been a lot of kind of back and forth guidance even you know amongst DCA in terms of reporting requirements for cryptocurrencies. And I think that plays into how we've just even seen the IRS trying to figure out how they define cryptocurrencies. And I know that's something you've written about for us at Clearance Jobs. For me, knowing that financial issues are far and above, especially in DOD, the top cause for security clearance denial, I'm not as interested in the person who's maybe investing in cryptocurrencies as the person who's using it to get ahead of the IRS or to not report all of their income. So I'd be curious if you have seen any cases around that, Or, you know, just in your kind of legal opinion or expertise, you know, whatever. Not this is official legal advice, listeners. That's our legal disclaimer today. But knowing, you know, for a cryptocurrency, what is the bigger issue? Are you seeing people that are not reporting that income to the IRS? And again, we just saw a report come out saying the IRS is looking to crack down on those people. So if that's you, they're coming for you.
3: Right, right. Well, some of our listeners uh, may recall or may have been aware of this issue when it first came up actually a couple of years ago the dcsa the defense counterintelligence and security agency put out a opinion that said that security clearance holders needed to report ownership of cryptocurrencies as uh, foreign assets and that sent a lot of heads spinning and was quickly withdrawn Suffice it to say, those are not (laughs) reportable as foreign assets. But the broader question here, really, um, as you point out, is is kind of a tax issue. And that is, you know, are people using these currencies as a means of engaging either in illegal transactions, buying, you know, drugs or weapons or things that they're not supposed to be legally purchasing, maybe evading uh, certain, you know, customs laws or tax laws or things like that? Or in addition, you know whether they are using this as a means of investing and inflating their personal wealth and avoiding taxes on those gains. As you said, there's been some real flurry of activity recently with the IRS. They've been very aggressive in the last six months or so in going to federal court and obtaining subpoenas and court orders that are forcing various cryptocurrency providers if that's the technical term, this is basically forcing these folks to turn over logs of their users' uh, personal information. And the fear amongst the people who are you know, investing in these things is that it's going to be used to come after them and assess uh, penalties and potentially you know, criminally prosecute them for unpaid taxes. And if that is a category that describes you i do think there is you know genuine basis for concern there um so we are not seeing uh as of yet folks who are being denied clearances because they have done something illegal or questionable with regard to cryptocurrency but it is definitely something that i would see emerging as a as a basis for clearance problems, I would say probably in in as little as the next 12 to 24 months.
1: You touch on a good point. There is some aspect of I've gotten the cleared population has two very different demographics. I feel like you catch them on the other side, Sean. I catch them at the very beginning where they're wondering if something is wrong. And a lot of those people are wondering And they don't need to be. So I got, you know, I get emails from a guy who says, Hey, I invested $50 in a cryptocurrency. Should I be worried or should I report? I'm like, No, no. (laughs) Like the government is not concerned about your $50 investment. But if you're a gambler or a risk taker and you're making, and I certainly know people like this as well, just who have made significant investments, people who kind of like to play the stock market, who are kind of financial risk takers, that's a population from a cleared perspective that that I certainly worry about, the person who's maybe gambling in a certain sense by using these cryptocurrency markets. And I think that's what we'll start to see maybe as a red line, you know, in some of these security clearances denials and revocations. And it's not going to be the cryptocurrency alone, but that's just going to be one element of perhaps kind of poor financial decision making. Again, we always talk about the whole person concept and the security clearance process. So again, a single bad investment is not going to bring you down. But if the government sees that you're a person who is risky, who takes risky financial moves, then certainly we could see some denials and revocations based on that.
3: Yeah, no, I I think you're you're spot on. I mean, I, I always sort of jokingly tell people a little paranoia is a good thing for security clearance holders, but little being the operative word there, there is a spectrum here. And obviously, you know, there are some folks who maybe have anxiety or, or there's something else going on that's keeping them up at night. And these sorts of questions are bouncing around in their head. And I don't think that, you know, those are the things to worry about if you've got 50 bucks invested in crypto or if you've got ten thousand dollars invested in crypto as long as you're acting reasonably, and as long as a reasonable, ordinary person would look at whatever you're doing and say, it's legal, it's reasonably responsible. And if you lost it all tomorrow, you're not going to be bankrupt or, you know, on the street. Those are really the questions that I think people who are investing this stuff need to be asking themselves. And ultimately, I tell everybody who asks me this question, and I get it all the time, treat it like any other investment. If you are purchasing 100% of your purchasing power, it's all directed into crypto and, and you've got you know your entire IRA that's crypto and you've got all your available cash reserves in crypto. I mean, that's not reasonable. And, and no matter how much you may be making today, tomorrow, you might lose it all. So if you wouldn't take that investment strategy with A stock or a mutual fund or a bond, you probably ought to not be doing it with crypto. And so, as long as you're acting reasonably and you can justify what it is that you're doing, and it's not you know a cover for something illegal or a way to get around paying taxes, it's probably going to be okay.
1: Yeah, but now I mean, I feel like you've written articles on the site that you've kind of cautioned security clearance holders in the past because there is some gray area here. Would you still say, hey, if you have an active federal security clearance? don't invest in crypto or do you think the prevalence now of cryptocurrencies over the past couple of years has made it a little bit more open, a little bit less risky?
3: My view on this is is evolving a little bit. It, it has evolved a little bit over the last year. I mean, when this stuff first came out, it was really speculative. It still is to an extent. Personally, I'm not invested in it and it's not something that is within my personal level of risk tolerance, but everybody's different. And, you know, there are a broad spectrum of risk tolerances and preferences and things like that when it comes to investing. I, I think at this point we're in a place where you know maybe a year, two years ago I would have said, you know what? as a clearance holder, this is probably not something you want to be dabbling in. It's a little bit risky. but at this point, I think it's become mainstream enough where I'm not so concerned with clearance holders, you know dabbling in it. I'm just cautioning people who do to treat this with some degree of reasonable caution and make sure they're reporting everything. There's a box now, even on the tax return, your 1040 that asks if you own any cryptocurrency or if you have during the last year, that can be a problem if you're not answering that question correctly. So, you know, you got to do your due diligence, you got to be careful. But at this point, given where we are, I think that it is probably not unreasonable for clearance holders to be dabbling in this.
1: There you have it. Once the IRS adds a box for it on your tax forms, boom, it's no longer trendy and emerging. <laughs> it's officially it's officially establishment process. So security clearance holder, go out, invest, but invest wisely and don't make the IRS unhappy. Any other closing tips on cryptocurrencies, Sean?
3: No, just be careful, and you know if uh, whatever you're doing wouldn't look good on the front page of the Washington Post, probably shouldn't do it.
1: <laughs> That's like that should be the takeaway every time. Every every time we <laughs> chat, Sean. <laughs>
0: To hire security clear professionals, reach the largest collection of cleared candidates with clearancejobs.com. Clear professionals trust the privacy and security of Clearance Jobs' career network, along with federal agencies and more than a thousand intelligence and defense contractors. Features like IntelliSearch, Workflow, and Meetings make it easy to build relationships, pipeline, and automate the recruiting process while slashing time to hire. Get more information and learn how you can connect with top cleared candidates at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance in Security. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have
2: but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.